welcome to Settling the Score, the podcast where we discuss the great film scores. I'm Andy. And I'm John. And we have assembled a list of hundreds of film scores that are considered worth talking about. And we're assigning them to ourselves by random drawing. And this time, the luck of the draw gave us Brad Fidel's score to the 1991 sci-fi action blockbuster Terminator 2 Judgment Day. Terminator 2 Judgment Day. T2, to its friends, was written by James Cameron and William Wisher, and it was produced and directed by James Cameron. Andy, tell us about T2. Remember T1? He's back, just like he said. (laughs) It's the sequel to The Terminator 1984, the surprise hit sci-fi action thriller in which robots from the future come back to battle it out in the present day, except one of them's not a robot. And in this movie, robots from the future come back to battle it out in the present day, and both of them are robots this time. That's right. Arnold Schwarzenegger is back reprising his role as the Terminator, although this time his mission is different than it was in the first movie. Robert Patrick plays the newfangled robot, the T-1000, who is this movie's villain. Linda Hamilton and Edward Furlong play Sarah and John Connor, the targets of all of this future robotic assassination interest. Uh, let's see, who else? Joe Morton as a scientist named Miles Dyson. Esapetha Merkerson. <laughs> uh, Jeanette Goldstein. And the psychologist guy from the first movie came back. Oh, that's right. Uh, Earl Bone as Dr. Silberman. So... It's 1991, and in 1997, the world is going to nearly end in an artificial intelligence-triggered nuclear cataclysm known as Judgment Day. And now, the machines from a war-torn future after Judgment Day have come back to the present to respectively try to prevent it or try to ensure it by determining what happens to regular kid John Connor, who they know is going to grow up to be the leader of the human resistance. Is that confusing enough for you? Can we just start talking about it? Good enough, John? (laughs) It is both confusing and good enough. Thank you. So while we're reading up on this, looking online to see different things people have said about this score, uh-huh. I came across people saying, this score defined my childhood. This is amazing. Brad Fidel made this sound that just captured my imagination, and it's my favorite movie, and this music is what makes it, and thank you, Brad Fidel. And I thought, yeah, yeah, I totally see that. It's got its own world. It's its own score. Yeah. Yeah. And then I saw other people saying, hey, I just rewatched Terminator 2, and like, oh my god, that music is terrible. And I was like, yeah, right, yeah, the music is terrible. <laughs> and I don't know how to reconcile those, so I'm not sure what I'm going to be saying on this show. Um, but maybe you can help me work that out. Well, do you think those two different opinions are from people from different future times? Timelines? Because that could explain it, right? I guess. In one timeline, somebody came back in time to cause Brad Fidel to write something different. I mean, that's the real problem. I'm from both of those timelines. Like, ah, well, that's the real problem always, isn't it? Uh, I guess. Oh, it's <laughs> profound. Yeah, I hear you. I have both instincts about this as well. And I'm particularly curious what you thought of the score to T2 as it compares to uh, the score to T1, the first of the Terminator movie. Yeah, I watched both of them. You said you watched both of them. Yeah. Maybe we should just talk about the first score because it came first. Yeah, I mean, this is the first time that we've been assigned a sequel straight off the bat without having done its predecessor, I guess, if you don't include the Star Wars uh, sequels that we did in the Oscars episode <laughs> before we yeah. did Star Wars proper. But yeah, we got dumped in Terminator 2, and uh, it's imperative that we lay the groundwork with the Terminator. Yeah, for a lot of reasons. Not just 
because of the movie's ambitions, but because the fact that Brad Fidel wrote the score and the fact that he wrote it in this style all is because right. of what happened in the first movie. So let's talk about Terminator 1984. The Terminator 1984. The Terminator. Back when there was only one. That's right. So, I mean, I think the thing that needs to be said about The Terminator 1984 is that though it is now remembered as a classic blockbuster action movie, it is, in fact, if you haven't seen it recently or thought about it recently, important to remember, it is a low-budget, independent, you know, it's a low-rent slasher movie, basically. Yeah, I was about to say, it's a horror movie, right? It's got a monster who you can't kill who's coming to get you no matter what. And you think he's dead a couple different times, but no, then he jumps back up and tries to grab you again. Yeah, it's following the, like, 80s slasher playbook, mostly. But it has a fairly interesting science fiction story grafted onto it or as the foundation of it. And it's been made with a lot of assurance by the young James Cameron, who's going to go on to be the you know most successful filmmaker of all time or something, right? He's up on some list. I mean, we've talked about him already in our Titanic episode. That's right. Titanic. You just need to say the word Titanic. He, he's James Cameron. He knows what he's doing in certain respects. And sure. this was his springboard to fame and fortune. So the movie is kind of coming out of nothing and they're getting the absolute most possible bang for their buck. And you can sort of see that. It's both cheap and impressive at once. That's what the score fits into and that's what the score needs to be. So Brad Fidel gets the job to score this movie. He gets the job because his agent sends a tape of some of his synthesizer experimentation to Cameron and they come to his studio and he plays some musical ideas and Cameron is taken with this newfangled approach to music and thinks, yeah, that's right for this movie. Well, I think he also gets this job because he is not a top-level guy. He is established, has written some scores for high-level TV shows at this point, and he's also played keyboards yeah. for Hall & Oates for a tour. Went on tour and, with Hall & Oates, right? So he's reached a certain level of success as a keyboardist and as a composer, but he is a solo guy. He just works out of his home studio in his garage, and he is thus affordable for a movie like this. I think that's why James Cameron thinks maybe this is what our movie needs. He's looking for what the movie can afford. Sure. Well, you know, he's a pragmatic guy. I think it's both. Yeah, but I mean, this is not a movie that could afford a full orchestra. True. So it didn't even occur to them to think about that. True. So they found the guy who made a compelling case for not using the full orchestra. In fact, he doesn't use any orchestra. He doesn't use any instruments. <laughs> he, <u> he only uses his synthesizers to score this movie. You know, the synth sounds, the electronic sounds that we're going to be hearing are just so strongly associated with this era, with the 70s and 80s especially. And it's in great part because the idea of an affordable studio that one person could just run themselves had sort of popped into being suddenly. If you can put up with the synth, you can make music for so much cheaper. That's why it's in all of these low-budget movies, because as soon as this kind of equipment exists, it presents... Uh, budgeting option that is attractive to anyone who saves the music for last and <laughs> wants to find the cheapest way to do it, which is still what synths are, but synths have become more elaborate since then. But even when synths were primitive, there was still a desire to try and see the way that they could turn out to be the right thing for a movie. So this is 1984. 
The world of synthesizers is still in its infancy. The synthesizers that he's got don't even know how to talk to each other. Nothing is standardized. The MIDI standard, I think, had only been introduced the prior year, which is this system by which all these new electronic music devices can communicate with each other. But his equipment uh, came out before that, so he can't plug them into each other. He's just got like a room full of these boxes that make beeps and boops, and he's going to wrangle them into place against each other at the same time as each other, and he comes up with this. I actually really like this. I do too. This is super effective. I feel like it does have something significant to do with the success of this movie, that it has this title on it. We can talk about the rest of the score, but this theme, to open this way with this sound, I think, contributes something pretty substantial to making this low-budget horror movie feel like it's got a little more going on than usual. Yeah, he wanted to evoke this idea of a machine, some kind of inexorable factory process that was coming to get you. He came up with this wonky rhythmic underbed that is hard to put your finger on, but it really does sound like some kind of non-human machine process is happening. And then there's this melancholy melody on top of it, and it's a very potent combination. Yeah. It's a potent combination just the way you described it. And then the specific musical rhythmic layering of these things is subtle and hard to define, hard to predict. Yeah. Creates such an evocative effect just through rhythm, through rhythmic layering, which is not something that we see a lot in movies, this kind of sophisticated <laughs> polyrhythm effect. Well, it's sophisticated and it's not sophisticated. All right. Yeah, say. Totally agreed that this is a deservedly iconic main title theme. You know who else thought so? Was uh, our subject from our last episode, Henry Mancini. Towards the end of his life, he was tasked with presenting a live performance concert of, you know, great memorable themes from film music, and he picked this main title from The Terminator to be included in that. When he went to try to figure out how to get people to play it, you know, to perform it on stage as part of his concert, he went and asked Brad Fidel, what rhythm is this? How do I play this? It was only at that point that Fidel kind of had to sit down and say, yeah, what is this because he had arrived at this like churning out of phase falling forward not quite in proper time effect serendipitously yeah i think mancini asked him for a lead sheet yeah and then fidel because he just works directly from the synthesizers thought oh i better hire someone to make a lead sheet about this and then they had to discuss well what what should it say oh, i'm not sure yeah none of the score for this movie was written down at all it's all him playing live and like i was saying these different synth boxes that he's playing on these different keyboards each note is played live by him and when there are multiple boxes going at the same time he has to wrangle them so that they play together nicely and they don't always play together nicely which you know you said a minute ago that he did this with no instruments but i actually think that that kind of a synthesizer is 
if anything, more like a traditional instrument. Sure. That all it does is produce sound. It's not programmed in a sophisticated <laughs> way that will sequence the sounds for you. You've got to just play it like a musician plays any other instrument. Uh, of course, I was being flip. Of course, yeah, if you're playing this and making music out of it, then it's by definition an instrument. So he has to really uh, guide these things into doing what they need to do, just the same like, you're right, like any other instrumentalist. Yeah, I mean, he, he talks about it. Those things were chained together, but it was their technology. It didn't interface with anything else. So if my Prophet 10 was going, boom, 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 and the other thing was going, I had to literally sit there live and change the tempo and try to get them to match. Part of the nature of the score is me trying to get control of the machines. While the machines are trying to get control of the people in the movie, I'm sitting here desperately trying to get control of these machines. I mean, that's like an after-the-fact <laughs> parallel that he's drawing there, but... I think there's something to it. I do think, at least in the main title, there is something to it. Yeah, so the reason that there's this, you can't put your finger on it, out-of-phase rhythmic loop going is because, in fact, there was a rhythmic loop going that was going on one of his synths, and he had to manually press the button to set the loop point. And, you know, he was a little bit off. He meant for it to be in 12 time. If you count them out, there's 12 notes in that rhythm. But he is, you know, he was a little late pressing the button and they kind of wound up being 13-ish. Hard to say. I think when it did actually try to get shoehorned into a lead sheet, it got written out in something like a 13-16 time signature. But that is so key to this sound, is that you're tripping over yourself. There's clearly some process happening. There's some sequence going on that is just going to loop and repeat because it is autonomous. But you don't understand it. You can't get your head around it. It's just coming to get you. Maybe. Look, I agree that the overall effect is that this is a slightly off-kilter rhythm, but... I read there were, you know, there was an article that went around a few years ago in Slate where someone said, what is that meter? It's impossible. No one can figure out what it is. And oh, maybe technically it's 1316. But I dare say it's very clearly 13. It's not actually slippery in the final product. I don't think that what we hear in the movie is the mistake where he mistakenly pressed the thing at the wrong time. I think he heard that and then thought, oh, I like that. And then did it consistently because he doubles it up. He has other drums come in and hit the same rhythm. It's pretty clearly on the beat for like a seven plus six, right? Dun 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 dun. Pretty clear what that is. Dun 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 dun. That's seven, and then dun 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 is six more. I think what he must have had as the bass rhythm that he hit the in and out points at the wrong time would have been everything but the first one there. Dun 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 dun. Then if you just had a little bit of one extra before it repeated, dun 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 And then he heard that as oh the first beat. Dun 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 But um Everybody got that? Well people say they like when we get a little technical sometimes. I think this is followable. We're getting as little technical as we can. What's so fascinating and uh, I think really wonderful about this piece is that the melody is performed against the 13 doing its best not to be in 13. Yeah, that's right. That's what makes it really interesting. He, 
I think still had a just kind of six in his mind as what the melody deserved as its accompaniment. So the melody is struggling to do its best to find six, even though it's being given six and a half. That creates a sense of struggle, of the heroism, but also the failure. I mean, the sadness of this theme. It's about uh, impending doom. I mean, I don't know. What do you think this theme is about? I guess it becomes important as we go on to the, its future use here. What, what does the theme correspond to in the story of the Terminator? Didn't he say something like it was about the sadness of this future dystopia? The straggling remnants of humanity are trying to huddle together for warmth and whatnot? Sure, and that sounds plausible, but when you watch the movie, what do you think it means to you? The first movie? Yeah, the first movie still. I mean, I don't think you hear the theme all that much throughout the body of the movie, do you? No, you don't. And in fact, Fidel had a story about that. He said that he had composed the theme into the movie a couple times, and James Cameron, who knows what he wants, said, no, 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 we're (laughs) not doing that. He said that, for example, in the scene where Kyle and Sarah are the only survivors of the Terminator's, you know, assault on the police station, he said as they left, he played this hero theme. He played the theme to suggest that they were the human spirit and they were the heroes. And James Cameron said, no, no, no. We don't want the audience to be thinking about the story. (laughs) We just want them to be on the edge of their seat. I don't know if those are exactly the words, but that was the meaning. That hearing music like this opens up something in the audience's brain, makes them check in with things that we don't want to give them the space to check in with at this moment. Apparently, he was so consistent about that. I mean, in Fidel's interviews, he told that one specific story, but then he also said James Cameron just wasn't really into using themes during the movie. So yeah, he mostly doesn't. Yeah, the edge of your seat that Cameron wants to keep you on, that's being given to you by stuff that sounds like this. Yeah, so here's this action sequence where uh, Arnold is, you know, is coming after him. They shot up a club, and now he's got a car, and then the cops are chasing him. And there is this synthesizer stuff, unmistakably synthesizer stuff. Which sounds, I don't know, on the one hand, yeah, it sounds a little corny to today's ears, right? Yeah. Sounds a little cheesy and corny and like, oh yeah, a computer must sound like this, boop, boop, beep, boop. But then I kept thinking, all right, well, what would you do? This is meant to be a new kind of villain. This is a horror monster, but he's a machine, which, you know, hadn't really quite been done this way before. And if I'm composing this in 1984, I need to acknowledge the inhumanity of this. I need to make some gesture towards the machineness of this. So I really am of two minds, because on the one hand, I think this sounds like a corny thing from the 80s to suggest a computer, but then I also feel like, but it's kind of cool, and it does something. If you didn't have the built-up associations with this being cheesy, I was willing to believe that in 1984, I might have been really excited by this. Yeah. I think this is an interesting topic because someone who has expressed his opinion that this sounds pretty cheesy is present-day Brad Fidel. It's true. He says that (laughs) that was, you know, a thing at the time, but, uh, you know, bell bottoms go out of style, and so did that. He looks back on that and it sounds cheesy to him. But to his surprise, it has become very popular with retro aesthetics recently, and people are really into it now because it's retro and it sounds so 80s and they love that. 
I agree with you. It's not as intrinsically cheesy as people make it out to be. I mean, my attitude is it's not as intrinsically 80s as people (laughs) make it out to be, even though it's characteristic of pretty much just one decade of movie scoring to do this kind of thing in this kind of movie. If you just let go of your historical knowledge, it's a musical choice, and it has an effect that doesn't have to do with era. And in fact, I get a little bit dismayed by retro, per se, because it's about loving stuff from the past, but it's about loving it in that it's from the past, and, you know, the distance between you and it is so essential to why it's exciting. And I feel like that locks it into being a thing from the past. As soon as you say it's retro, then you can't do it 100% anymore. You can do it 90%, and the other 10% is self-awareness. And It's camp. There's a camp element even as you love it. That's what camp is. I feel like in camp, the proportions are different. It's like we would laugh at this were we not yeah. choosing to love it. And this is more like... That's true. I did have a good time when they showed this at camp. <laughs> I thought the synths met the movie in a way that kind of is what made the movie seem to be getting something right, that made it go beyond its budget. Yeah. Cameron, I saw said, and who knows whether this is true, but I saw him saying that the impetus for the movie was a uh, daydream or maybe a real dream he had about a metal man who just couldn't be stopped. No matter what you did, he would keep coming and trying to kill this woman. And, and that sounds a little like a dream, although I think the really the impetus was, how can I get successful? Um, <laughs> you know, I didn't realize until reading up on this that he started out as like a special effects guy for Roger Corman that that's who James Cameron was originally? I mean, that makes total sense, right? It makes total (laughs) sense, yes. Yeah, he had just made Piranha 2, and then it had gotten taken away from him, and he didn't want that to happen anymore, and he tried to come up with, what's a project that'll show all of my strengths and hopefully make a splash, and he nailed it. But anyway, this is like a bad dream concept, that there is some kind of robot that is just so powerful you can't do anything about it, and it's just going to keep getting up, which I know is the same as in, like, uh, Halloween or any unstoppable slasher movie but there's something about the combination of that with science fiction and the sense of a future doom that is a potent dream and i think that this synth gets us there right from the beginning the first 10 minutes of the movie have a synth drone like there's a low d just playing Mm -hmm. the whole time that really did something for me. When we were talking about Titanic and I was semi-defending the faux Enya synthesizers in there and I was saying that the point is that it feels like it's coming from inside your head or it's coming from somewhere other than where normal music comes from. These obviously electronic sounds feel like they're coming from beyond normal everyday experience. They know more about existence. I agree. I had that experience watching the original movie, too. Is that difficult to reconcile with my stated distaste for the phony-sounding synth choir stuff that's in Titanic? I don't think so, because, like you said, this is not attempting to sound like anything else that it's not. This is not attempting to sound like a string section or a choir. This is attempting to sound like a new sound, a synthetic sound that is made up out of where there wasn't any sound before. Yeah, I mean, like the characteristic sounds of synthesizers are the square waves, which is like a completely opposite of what happens in natural waveforms that, you know, smoothly go up and down. Just imagine squares up and down. (laughs) Right. Just a complete, like a robot made the waveform all the way down to the, you know, microsecond. And you hear that. It sounds like 
This is coming from a universe of robots, not from my universe. Right. There's this buzz to a square wave or a sawtooth wave. A sawtooth wave, that's another, right. Yeah. It's unmistakably inorganic. So maybe that's a good segue to what we should be here to talk about, the score for Terminator 2 Judgment Day. Because in that movie, in that score, the usage of electronic means is a little different. It's still Brad Fidel basically alone in a room with a bunch of boxes. But this time, it's 1991, and his boxes are a little smarter than they were in 1984. The capabilities for synthetic or, shall I say, electronic music reproduction are different because they're not all synthetic. So I think here we should take a moment to explain the difference between synthetic instruments and sampled instruments. Mm-hmm. Yes. You agree that we should take this moment? Yes, I agree that we should. I, I, you should. I should. Okay. So the sounds that we were just talking about in the 1984 Terminator score, the sounds that were synthesized by these machines, these are synthetic because there was no original acoustic instrument creating them. They're created from whole cloth by the machine. The sound has nothing to do with air. That's right. Never happens in the air until you hear it. That's right. It never happens in the air, which, as we're saying, is starkly in contrast with how real instruments sound. So, yeah, the desire to be able to reproduce what real instruments can do, which, as you say, is there's a great budgetary motivation to be able to do this, what begins to happen is a kind of a hybrid, a uh, cybernetic organism, if you will, of music reproduction. Let's just say cyborg for short. That sounds cool, right? <laughs> I was going to suggest neticanism. Uh-huh. Well, that sounds cool, too. All right, we'll, we'll leave it to the listeners. It's a kind of hybrid approach because what you do is you take a real recording of a real instrument playing a real note. And you take that recording, or a sample, if you will, you sample what the sound of the instrument is, and then you put that recording into a computer, and you trigger that recording when you want to, uh, you know, have a note play. And sampled instruments, well, those are what I use all the time nowadays, and they have gotten very sophisticated. I can play stuff with my sampled instruments, which are very close in quality and verisimilitude to just having a real instrument play those notes, because in fact, a real instrument did play those notes, and I'm just choosing the order in which they're played back. Yeah, you know, like... A full recording of a piece is just is a very, very long sample. <laughs> right. So it's really just how short you cut up the pieces. If you just take one note at a time and then maybe you manipulate those, what you're really listening to is thousands and thousands of little real recordings that have had things done to them. Well, the thing is, though, that the technology in 91 has gotten so they've got some real recordings of real instruments, but not very many. The memory of these things, you know, is comically small compared to what's in your pocket nowadays. So what winds up happening is for a given instrument, they'll record it once. You know, they'll record an instrument playing one note at one point in its range, maybe somewhere else in its range, usually just once. They'll take that real recording and then they'll just use computer processing to pitch shift it so that you can play it back at different pitches to get all the different notes, but you're only loading one recording into the memory. So for Fidel's T2 score, 
he's got these two big machines that you might not call synthesizers anymore. I guess you'd call them samplers. Yeah. Because what you do is you load these sample libraries into them. And this is the very early days of that. He's got the ProSonus libraries loaded into his Fairlight machines. You know, he's got one of them for his percussive sounds and one of them for his sustained sounds. And this time he can plug a MIDI cable between them. Anyway, there was this discussion between him and Cameron about, well, this is now a big movie. (laughs) Now, instead of a low-budget surprise B-movie grungy hit, this is now going to be the most expensive movie ever made. Should I still be scoring this in my garage? And the answer was yes, that they still wanted to recreate something of that, you know, lone gunslinger in a room full of boxes sound to tie together. All right, so this is the real question. Why was that Cameron's choice? Cameron had, at this point, he'd already made Aliens and the Abyss with big-time orchestra composers James Horner and Alan Silvestri. Right. And he had budget up the budget in this movie. This is a super expensive movie. It broke new ground for special effects. Everything about this was designed to blockbust. Why did he say, let's go back to the guy from the first movie? Was it just loyalty? Was it because he thought that the special atmosphere of the first movie depended on the music sounding like this? Or why? What's the point? I think it's mostly the latter. I think, you know, he wanted to have that theme again. He wanted to honor the acknowledgement of the machininess of things that Fidel had laid out in the first one. So they kind of came to this compromise where it's still Fidel in a room playing every Everything himself on these keyboards and computer stuff, but the sounds he's using are at least going to be initially derived from the sounds of real orchestral instruments. That might be right, but it is strange yeah. because what room someone's sitting in and what their equipment looks like and you know what techniques they're using is not the same thing as what the score sounds like. And this score sort of nominally the same, but its effect is rather different. Yeah. And so if the point wasn't to maintain the budget and wasn't to maintain the personnel, it was to maintain the sound, but let's change the sound. That's weird. It's a little weird to me how much they changed. I agree. And I guess the question is, uh, do you think it works? Which of these scores do you like Better, Andy. I think that I, I I don't know. I don't know how to answer any opinion questions about <laughs> these things. I mean, I don't know what I think of these movies. I'm lost. I'm lost in my own, you know, the dark night of my pre-opinion self. I I don't know what to do with these movies. Uh, I don't dislike them, but uh, I mean, they're pretty good, right? I mean, Terminator Two is like the most influential action movie. This is like the action movie that all other action movies dream about when they go to sleep. And <laughs> it... You're saying that androids dream of electric sounds? I, I'll let you say it. You Thank can you. say these things. Sometimes I try. <laughs> it's got me. I'm watching it. Uh, you know, James Cameron cannot be denied. That's the word that I kept coming back to, you know, from our last James Cameron episode. Undeniable. No matter what eyebrows you may want to raise against the movie... There's just something undeniable about it that must be respected. That guy's instinct is so honest. He knows what gets him going, and it is not the theme about these heroes. It's whether that truck turned over, and he 
He just knows how to deliver it and you get the delivery and I respect it. It's exciting. You know, in 1991, I can remember I was too young to see a movie like this and it would have upset me because I was a softie, but the special effects were astonishing. Astonishing. Yeah. I, mean, I looked at all the magazines that had pictures of this morphing man. He was onto something there. That's something everyone wanted to see and look at. Since you mentioned the effects, I just want to call out what I think is my favorite effect moment in the movie. Can you guess? Your favorite effect in the movie? Yeah, my favorite visual effect in the movie. There are so many. I, I mean, know. it's a smorgasbord. Uh, no, I don't know. It's towards the end when the good Terminator and the bad Terminator are finally fighting it out in the steel mill. Schwarzenegger throws the other guy into a wall and rather than turn around, he simply morphs his body reverse so that his face comes out the back of his head. I think that is the coolest thing in the movie that he just doesn't bother to turn around. Yeah, there's so much sheer kinetic exuberance. It's just, we want to see this thing shaped like that. We want his head to split open into two pieces and then warm together. And he, he wanted to go between these bars. That would be so cool. And it's cool. And you're just watching it for the physicality of this. And, you know, the story has been hooked to the back of the action. Right. And the action drives forward. And every time you look back, you're like, is the story coming along? Yeah, sure. It's, we're dragging it along. Anyway, you asked me a while ago, what do I think about the change in score style? Yeah. I think that part of the reason they did it was because the sense that what they had done in 1984 was cheesy had already started to set in by 1991. So yeah. yeah, good point. This music is just trying to keep up with the times. And I think that, that is the wrong way to think about music. And I don't know. I don't know. Because the <laughs> fact is, in all its 1991-iness... It is so essentially Terminator 2, this indelible, undeniable action machine, and being a choppy world of samples is what that is. But the sense of being brought into a dream and kind of having science fiction thoughts about what's beyond my experience, that just hearing a nice square wave drone or whatever that is, does for me in 1984, is mostly missing in the 1991 movie. There's not as much dream in it. There's not as much space for your imagination to run. You're really just watching the stuff and being buffeted by these sounds. I think that's my opinion. What's your opinion? When I watched the 1984 movie, I was kind of cerebrally excited by the choice to make the music sound this way. And I thought that it was a cool choice and a valid one and the correct choice. You know, it definitely made the movie what it is. And I was excited to hear an evolution of that because at the same time, yes, I also thought, well, yeah, I mean, this is kind of cheesy boo boo beep noises when you look at it from a certain perspective. So T2 is more evolved and a higher budget and more thought put into it in every way, right? So I'm excited to hear how Fidel grows up with it. And I think I wound up being a little disappointed because, yeah, I was missing some of that rawness that felt better motivated in the first movie. And I think it wound up sounding a little generic in T2. On the one hand, I do think it's an interesting instinct to take these actual samples of real orchestral instruments and futz with them to make up interesting sounds. And there are a few really, I think, outstanding successes on that count that he comes up with. But he does that all the time with everything. 
Like in the very first thing you hear in the movie, you know, when he wants to have a low string bed, he takes a violin sample, a recording of a real violin playing a long held note, and he takes it and he pitches it down three octaves or whatever. So now it's playing way, way too slow for you to really recognize that it was a real instrument at any point, but it still is. Then he puts these marcato samples, samples of strings playing a kind of a quick short note, but he messes with those. So these opening chords, I feel like this is just like laying down the difference between these two movies. In the first movie, you hear these ethereal sounds from outside conventional reality, sounds that make you think about, you know, some underside of the world that we can see, what science fiction knows about and we don't, the future and alternatives to life. Because that's what synthesizer sounds sound like to me. In this second movie, it starts out and it sounds like the world has been put through a slow motion distortion and what's happening. And those might both be made with electronic devices, but they're really different dramatic signals. I think it has something to do with the ambitions of this movie. I mean, they clearly knew that they were making a bigger movie, that they wanted to have a broader impact. And uh, there's something about giving you this slowed down sense that, uh, you know, the world is bigger out there than we can put in our frame for you. Yeah. It's that signal of saying, this is serious, though. Mm -hmm, No, mm -hmm. but really, this is serious. Right. This string sample that's so basic to the sound really encapsulates my ambivalence about this because I can't hear that kind of string sound without being more aware than I want to be that it is a fake synthesizer dated string sound. But it does also cast kind of a mood of, yeah, computerized doom, being stuck somehow. Whenever there's some downtime, there's a little bit of this glum, doomed music, and it does match with the uh, blue-gray tint that this whole movie has. So I saw a YouTube video where somebody recreated this opening cue, just played the same notes, but with more modern, you know, better samples to more accurately reproduce the sounds of what it would sound like if orchestral instruments were playing this music. And he observes that, you know, it works, but it doesn't have the same feel to it. It doesn't have the same grit of the processing. You know, there are processing artifacts that crop up when you do these drastic pitch shifts. And that's part of the intention of the sound that Fidel wanted, was to have these marks of not quite real fidelity griming up the surface of the sound. And that is a good effect, but, you know, as the guy observes, and I'll talk more about this video in just a minute, as he says, if you just take the notes, uh, they're kind of generic. I think that sometimes the effect of, oh, the weird soundscape that's being given to me because of all the processing he's doing with these sounds, that is working for me, that is telling me something about this world. You know, sometimes that was enough to carry me, and sometimes it wasn't. I was just sort of left with, yeah, well, this is kind of not very distinctive or distinguished music. Yeah, the expression in the score, such as it is, is pretty much all about timbre. I mean, what he does with notes, with harmonies, 
with melodies. Is, yeah, generic. It's just sort of go-to gestures. The timbre is what matters. The crust, like you say, on those samples or the sense of choppiness in the action scenes, that's really what's communicating. I thought that the most successful sample in the movie, I'm probably not alone in thinking this, is the T-1000 sound. It's gotta be. Right. (laughs) Here's another um, connection to Mancini that I wanted to make. How? Tell me. (laughs) How does it relate to this? All right, well, go ahead and say what that sample is. This is a sound effect slash musical signal that you hear nearly every time Robert Patrick is on screen. Distant groan, sort of a machine groan, yeah. or like a moo. That's what I kept writing in my notes. So the mooing. Before we talk about how it's made, I think this is a really good choice. Yes, really helps the movie along. Yeah, absolutely. This is one of the successes I was referencing earlier. Even though it's used obsessively, exactly the same sound over and over, because he's a machine, because it's the nature of this kind of a horror thriller where his unstoppable sameness is exactly what you're afraid of, we need this. And it's such a good counterbalance to the casting and the characterization of this villain that he's smooth, he's just a slim, pleasant-looking normal man walking around saying normal things. Inside, he's a horrible, shapeless monster. So, you know, we see him just standing, and the sound goes... There was a guy here this morning looking for him, too. Yeah, a big guy on a bike. Has that got something to do with this? No. I wouldn't worry about him. You know, there's a deep pit of your stomach feeling in that sound that is exactly what's needed. That character doesn't need his forcefulness substantiated. That's what's there. He's athletic. He runs. He doesn't blink. What he needs substantiated is that he is a horror from beyond imagining. And there it is in that sound. And the other thing that's associated with him at the other end of the range is that he is a blade who will impale you through the head. And that is given to these violin sounds that are often coupled with the groaning. Yeah, which are uh, less successful, you're going to say? I wasn't, but you say it. Go ahead. What do you think of those? Yeah, every time I heard those, I was like, those are less successful. Those are Fidel's own samples. He had an actual violinist come and play electric violin for both scores. They're squeaky screechy. I mean, they're certainly conspicuous and annoying. But uh, so is a blade going through your head, right? Yeah, exactly. But I have this reaction to a lot of art about things that are meant to be annoying. I feel like, yeah, but you don't have to actually annoy me to get me to understand that. I did want to say, though, that I agree that this low, unearthly, growling noise is kind of wonderfully indifferent to the action a lot, and it gets repeated so much that it gives you this sense of dread that it just keeps going. Get down. During all this discordant action stuff that's happening around it is just... But then there's all kinds of other stuff happening, both in the score and on screen. I mean, it's 
like so much in the music here, you process it just barely as music. It yeah. more sounds like some kind of alarm going off. Right. It's some klaxon in the distance. Fidel described it as something like a chorus of artificial intelligent monks chanting in some future dystopia. Well, that's a very musical image for it, but I think I took it more as like the monster alarm going off. Like, sure. uh-oh, there's a monster here. It's just going to do that until the monster goes away. And I think that's how a lot of the music in this score works, which Fidel acknowledged in one of the re-releases of the soundtrack. He said, I'm often pleasantly surprised by the feedback I've gotten over the years about this soundtrack. Many younger musicians and filmmakers have mentioned that it held inspiration for them. The surprise for me is that the music was created to be so subservient in a frame-by-frame fashion to the visuals that I always wondered if anyone would get anything by listening to it by itself. Also, the experimenting I did on this score playing it in the gray area between what was music and what was sound effects certainly does not lend to easy listening. Yeah, I don't think that most of this is very much operating within the rules of musical, you know, rhetorical expression. It's just the interplay of different kinds of sound triggers for the audience. And this one for the monster is great. Yeah, this is absolutely a wonderful achievement, this sound. And so, yeah, let me go back to say... Say what it is, yeah. To say what makes this sound and why it has to do with Mancini. Do you remember back in the Pink Panther episode, you said that when Mancini is leading the band, <laughs> the horn players just can't help but give these falls to all of their notes. You know, you don't just hit a note, you go... Fwah. I don't think it's that they can't help it. He asked for that and they do a great job, I think is what I said. Oh, something like that. But yeah, the sound of a brass fall is a very idiomatic thing that you hear in you know jazz and other pop stuff like that, that we heard a bunch of in our last episode about Touch of Evil. And then, you know, here's the longest one that I can think of, which is the last note of the uh, Pink Panther theme. So if you're going to be writing music using sampled instruments, you can't recreate that just by playing the notes that the fall progresses through. It doesn't sound like a fall. It's this very specific sound. So if you're going to record uh, the sounds of instruments playing, well, you should just record the sound of them doing that. So indeed, these ProSonus libraries of brass samples included a patch called Brass Falls 12 in this case. And it was a patch that was meant to be used for that effect, to make like a horn sting in a big band kind of setting. So Fidel took that sound, and like I said, they don't record this happening for every note of the keyboard. They just record it once and then pitch shift it. So yeah, if you take it in its original intended register, and then just take it down and down, and as you take it down, it gets slower and slower as you're stretching out the sound wave to get it to be the slower pitch. And once you get it all the way down into this weird unearthly register, it sounds like this. really is an inspired thing. Before I go on, I should credit that I got this from that YouTube video I was mentioning earlier. It's by a guy named Alex Ball, who makes a lot of really interesting videos about this kind of stuff on YouTube. It's a really interesting watch. I recommend it. And then I should also say that in turn, he credits somebody named Python Blue with figuring out what a lot of the sounds and the synthesizer effects that were used in these scores. So I didn't figure it out. Those guys did. But check it out. Yeah, I mean, there are people who are like synth archaeologists who right. love this score and love going in and finding everything because it's findable. Sure. Most of what Fidel uses on this score is findable stuff. And 
When we were talking about, uh, I don't know, Hans Zimmer at some point, I made a crack about like, sometimes it sounds like he's composing with uh, orchestral hit. And then I talked about orchestral hit for a minute. Uh, uh, right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, talk about composing. Brad Fidel with... composes with orchestral right. hit. <laughs> he actually composes with the actual orchestral hit. Which was part of the, like the first Fairlight machine. This sample is a pretty famous sample. Do you know what it's from? Yeah, it's some famous classical piece, right? Yeah, it's the hit that shocks the audience right before the Infernal Dance in the Firebird by Stravinsky. Of course, of course, yeah. I mean, there's many orchestral hit samples at this point, and I think that the one that Fidel uses in Terminator 84 is not that one. But these things have histories in themselves. I mean, in pop music and hip-hop music, especially this sampling culture, is a huge part of what's been going on in popular music for the past 30 years. But that sort of conspicuous samples, these are just sample libraries that people use over and over. He also uses samples that are longer recordings of the brass instruments doing uh, crazy chaos sound effects. You know, just like get a section of brass players and tell them to go crazy making weird sounds with their instruments. Mm -hmm. And that sound is used, I think, very effectively for some of the morphing around that the T-1000 does, like when he schlumps his way into the helicopter through the cracked windshield. Get out. And then again, also notably when he's going through his death throes and turning into everything that he's turned into through the movie, you hear this chaotic brass sound, which is just a recording of, yeah, some real brass players making a bunch of noises. Yeah, and so this is the aspect of sampling that... I find problematic when I think about it, which is not to say that my natural inclination as a viewer is to think about this stuff, but my natural inclination as a podcaster is to think <laughs> about it. And to me, it sounds like a hole that someone has fallen in because of their technology. It doesn't sound like a clearly, creatively directed choice. Yeah. You know, you get advice about computers especially, but about any kind of creative task to be careful not to let the tools make the creative decisions for you. Hmm. Like, just use your tools. Don't let the computer tell you what to do. Use the computer. I feel like there's the sense of the sampler tricking him into thinking that these are choices when they're in fact just things the sampler can do. Yeah, like that brass bedlam clip. I was like, yeah, if I had a keyboard that did that, and I got to a scene in a movie where something was kind of changing shape. I was like, oh, I'll press, uh, I'll press a key yeah. on that sound. Yeah, I don't feel transported to anything or told about anything. I just feel like I hear someone with a box of stuff taking stuff out of the box and throwing it at the movie until he's done. Yeah, this is a tough question. I mean, this is something that I have wrestled with because, boy, the things that I can make happen, the sounds that I can make just unspool just by holding my finger down on one note of the keyboard... Uh, and in fact have done for not going to say what, but like, you know, there's a certain amount of paint by number guilt that I have about it sometimes. Yeah, you know, somebody already made a groove that does this. I'm just holding my finger down so it plays and somebody already made a brass section chaos effect thing. And I'm not telling these players, you know, what to do with their instruments. And 
I don't know. It's an interesting question, but when you have to get this stuff done, I guess it kind of fades away. And <laughs> I totally get the mindset where obviously, yeah, you throw this stuff in there. Yeah, I don't say any of this to impugn Brad Fidel himself. It's just work that he yeah. did and good for him. And it's just talking about what it is artistically. I think that sampling synthesizers can lead to a kind of creative optical illusion for the musician that because you have to press keys to play these things, you you are doing something that is commensurate with the musical activity of playing notes <laughs> and you can use that part of your brain to think about how to use these and some parts of this score i think find productive and interesting things that happen right. when you do that and other parts of it i think like if you had been building this by actually cutting with scissors you know, bits of tape, because that's really what you're doing with these samples, if you actually knew that what you were doing was choosing samples and applying them in the movie, you would never have chosen to do this. You only did this because it was on a keyboard that you played like a keyboard. And so I think my take and my reaction to this movie really comes down to like, well, that was a cool sound. Oh, that wasn't. He said, why? Yep. I don't want to hear another reverse symbol. Yeah. Oh, that was cool. <laughs> that clang was a good clang. Oh, there's too many clangs. It's just like a series of choices from a series of sound files. It's just like wave files being thrown at me. I mean, maybe it's not interesting that I am really on the same page with you about this is that I was bouncing back and forth between thinking that is a good clang. That is, <laughs> that is okay. That's one too many clangs. That is a evocative thing to do with a sound that's not being used as expected. Okay, I don't need to hear those violins. I don't need to hear those stabby things. <laughs> or I don't need to hear yeah. the, uh, yeah, sure, reverse symbol. I don't need to hear, the, you know, just constant pew, 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 pew kind of noises. But then again, there are, like I said, some real hits with the stuff that he comes up with. And I think we need to highlight the counterpart to the T-1000's noise, which is... The T-800, the Arnold Schwarzenegger robot, Terminator guy, <laughs> his iconic doorbell sound to tell you that he's on the screen all the time is this thing. Perhaps it's a little closer to its source material than the Brassfall one was, but this is a percussion patch in one of those Prosonus libraries that is an anvil noise. Sure enough, he takes it and he pitches it down and he layers it with a few different pitched versions of it. And again, I should credit that I got this from that Alice Ball video. You should check that out. I think it was on the same episode where I made a crack about Zimmer composing with the orchestral hit. I made the same crack later and I said he composes with, like, with an anvil. Yeah. Again, Brad Fidel actually composes with an anvil. <laughs> he composes with an orchestra hit and an anvil. Fidel says that in the original Terminator, when you hear that anvil breaking up the 13 rhythm, that that one, he did in fact have some early sampling equipment already in 1984, and that is a recording of him hitting a frying pan in his kitchen. Uh -huh. But you hear it in a lot of action movies, especially since Terminator, sure. to signify that metal is striking metal, and you know what that means. You're having a great time at the movies. <laughs> Whenever we talk about more recent iterations of this kind of scoring about action movies, I'm groaning a little that it seems to have gotten into the bloodstream and now people can't stop themselves from thinking this way when we talked about Crimson Tide in the 1995 episode, right. although in retrospect, it is absurd to call that an action movie because it's just a standing and yelling at each other movie. There's hardly any action in it. But it sounds like an action movie. Well, it's a macho movie. This is an actual action movie. 
I didn't object uh, in that gut level to this. It felt like it was actually true to James Cameron's outlook and how his mentality works. It didn't seem cynical. It seemed like it came by its obsession with force and momentum pretty honestly. But as I said on the other James Cameron episode, I don't like what its influence did in making people think, well, every movie's like that to some degree, right? If we want to keep them on the edge of their seats, we want them to not be thinking about anything. I don't know if that formula needs to be committed to as wholeheartedly as it has been committed to. So there is an aspect of this movie that feels like, here we go, down this path away from feeling. I don't even know if I'm having fun. I know that I'm compelled by it, but I still retain some of my childhood sense of like, why is so much horrible stuff happening? Like multiple people get impaled right through their face. Sure. We see the flesh get blown off someone's body in a nuclear holocaust sequence. And the movie clearly thinks, now you get to see this. And I saw Cameron saying in an interview a thing that really creeped me out and that I've been thinking about. He says something like, I think the Terminator appeals to something dark in the human psyche, that fantasy of being able to do exactly whatever you want to do whenever you want to do it. And I was like, yikes. He's saying that the Terminator appeals to people who wish they could be the Terminator? Is that what I'm enjoying about this? Gosh. Yeah, just usually we talk about like what's the underlying myth or what's the essential emotional message that's being put across here. So I had to try and check in with that when I was thinking about what kind of score should this movie have? What does the score need to do? Yeah, I mean, here's what I think is the most emotionally ambitious cue in the movie, I think, is when Schwarzenegger has been instructed not to kill anybody, but he still, by God, has to shoot guns at a lot of police officers. So he breaks the window and he's raking the miniguns over all of these uh, cop cars and stuff, but he's not killing anybody. And there is this, you know, one of the most melodic moments in the score that's, I think, meant to be like something noble. Something, you know, machine-oriented, but still noble. Noble because he's blowing up police cars instead of policemen. Right. Because he's following through on his promise to not kill anybody, which, yeah, I think its emotion is unclear. I think it's reaching to have some kind of emotion that it doesn't reach for elsewhere in the score. You know, there's a through line, there's a melody, and I don't know. Yeah, it's not totally thought through. I think it is meant to be at the same time. It's awesome that Arnold Schwarzenegger is uh, shooting a Gatling gun out a window. And also, it's, uh, you know, it's pretty cool that he's not killing anybody, right? And then also, and there's a lot of things blowing up. Yeah, it's saying that there's something noble, but it's not totally sure what's noble. But whatever that feeling is, it's pretty important to this movie and to this genre from now on. That weird feeling that this all is darkly meaningful. Yeah, it's the feeling of this is epic. Yeah, epic. This reaches for the deep meaning of good and evil, and it's true, it doesn't really have to elaborate on what exactly it's talking about, it just says, this is pretty epic, right? That idea of epic, it probably can be psychoanalyzed, and I'm not ready to do it right this second, but there's definitely some idea through this score and through this movie that, like, being tough is sad, right? (laughs) (laughs) That, like, violence is awesome and sad. 
Also, in this queue, it seems like Fidel remembers that Jim told him not to do the theme, but he would really like to do the theme. Right. So what if he does a thing that's, you know, a cousin of the theme? Will he be allowed to do that? He does that a few times in the movie, and every time I thought, oh, right, this could have been a movie with music. <laughs> well, I mean, to that point, when he does actually play the theme in the climax of the movie, you know, the very ending, and we do get to hear the actual theme melody on top of the clangy noises, the way they're meant to be together. Goodbye. I like sat up and thought, oh, this is like the best cue in the movie now that I got to hear this, you know, actually put together again and correlated with something meaningful on the screen. That was like one of the most effective parts of the music for me. Yeah. I mean, like we said in Titanic, when we're talking about a James Cameron movie, we're mostly talking about James Cameron's musical choices. The idea that you needed to save that emotion to be the payoff is right to a certain scale. I don't think you needed to save it for two hours. I yeah. think we could have checked in with it at various true. points. True. Also, what we need to talk about, the thing that I thought really makes that 84 theme have depth to it, have nuance and room to let your imagination find all kinds of angles on this, the rhythmic layering has been flattened out of the 1991 version. Yeah. It's not in 13 anymore, it's just in six. What a waste. <laughs> what a loss. Truly. Maybe this is a microcosm for the whole uh, difference between these two scores that we're talking about is that he said that that was because now he had these different newer boxes that could talk to each other that he could run a mini cable between. So in order to get them to line up, he had to simplify the rhythm so that, you know, it was easier to make them go in lockstep. It's a thing that he arrived at serendipitously but could have committed to compositionally, and it seems like he never did. This beautiful polyrhythmic effect that is really something special and rare in that piece. It's almost like a Charles Ives kind of experiment where it's like, this group, you're gonna do your best to think you're in 6-8, and this group over here is going to insist that you're in 13-16, and now just try and find each other on instinct. Yeah. The thing is that you can hear his actual human instinct in it because he had to manually find himself, you know, find the different performances against each other. Yeah, there's something genuinely human in a very special way about that. Yeah, and when he just makes it so that he can program the Fairlights to play in regular 12 by themselves at the same time, yeah, it, it, it loses something. It's a cop-out of a sense. So Brad Fidel, he, because of Terminator, sort of got boosted to a fairly top tier, given this small little world of film composers. He was now a prominent film composer. We got to do True Lies with James Cameron. He did some other big-ish movies. But then he sort of reached the end of his career alignment with Hollywood and left and hasn't really been doing film music for the past 20 years. 
And there are clips of him doing a autobiographical one-man stage show talking about his life and his career and his ideas about himself. And there's a scene you can watch on YouTube where he talks about getting the Terminator. What if the Terminator has a musical heartbeat, a relentless musical heartbeat that we hear every time we see him? He plays it at the piano, sort of recreating the moment of composing it. And even now, after years of this being his number one calling card thing, it is clear that he has not totally in his head decided what the rhythm is. <laughs> Counterpoint, humans struggle for survival against the machines. Because he spontaneously goes back and forth between the 13 and the 6 version in his left hand. In that kind of, you know, just finding his way kind of way. I think that he, because he doesn't work on paper, was able to leave this essential identity of the movie in kind of an amorphous place in his head, which, because it's on screen in the first movie, brings a really valuable humanity. And because he made an effort to keep it out of his work in the second movie, denies us what I think would have been a really valuable humanity. Nonetheless, always available in this movie is, well, it's a movie about machines taking over the world, and it's a movie about the death of all humanity. And uh, and it's also a movie, bizarrely, about how a murder robot is, like, the best possible dad. Like, she makes a speech about exactly that. Mm-hmm. So it's a pro-murder robot well, movie. Well, let's be clear, Andy. It's a pro-murder robot who has been <laughs> reprogrammed not to murder robot movie. I guess. The amount that he has to be a robot and does not have any human ideas is inconsistent. You know what? I gotta say, I think Arnold Schwarzenegger actually gives quite a good performance in this movie. Oh, he's a very charming screen presence. I think when he does his robot can't smile face, that's really good. And then the couple times after that where he tries to work a little smirk or grin into what he's doing, I actually feel very nicely motivated. I watched behind the scenes making of Terminator 2 footage. He seemed very both sort of fun and charming and professional and committed uh, in a good way and all of that stuff. I thought, oh, I guess I see why he was a big movie star for a while. But he is just playing a murder robot with an Oscar. Austrian accent in this. You gotta figure that that Austrian accent is like as good as the machines could get a robot to speak English. <laughs> Why? The Robert Patrick robot speaks perfect California English. Exactly. He's a more advanced model. That model is so advanced that when it is pretending to be the foster mother, it actually starts making beef stew. <laughs> <laughs> it is chopping the celery. It's just going about its business. The other question I was going to ask is, a few times in this movie, in both movies, you see like the robot vision readout in mm-hmm. his eyes, what he's ostensibly seeing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Arnie vision. Across the screen, it says, human casualties, 0.0. Mm-hmm. And my question is, who's uh, who's reading that? Why is <laughs> What is typing that for whom to read? Yeah. Like, what homunculus is inside of him saying, oh, now I know how many casualties there are. It says here, zero. Yes, homunculus <laughs> is exactly the reference there. This is a profound question about the nature of consciousness. Terminator raises it in a trenchant and meaningful way. And it doesn't answer it. So there. It doesn't answer it. I thought you were going to say, what would it mean if it said 0.2 casualties? <laughs> it would mean that there is an injury, which there are, so maybe it should. The sequence where Sarah Connor is getting ready to break out of the hospital, the asylum, where she's been kept against her will for a long time, the music just comes in, goes out, comes in, little spots. (laughs) 
some of it's bits of music, some of it's just kind of sound effects, some of it's just drone to color it. I think that kind of thing is really effective, and it gets back to a conversation that I guess is just going to recur forever as long as we do this show, about do I care about that qua music? I mean, it's not, it's just barely music. It's good sound design, and the idea of a movie that uses its composer mostly to do a kind of non-diegetic sound design uh, is fine with me. But how much does it have to do with my enthusiasm for movie music? I, I don't know. It feels like it would be stubborn to deny that this basically works for this basically super successful movie. Right. That is still exciting and is still a model for action movies. The movie is clearly an icon and this music is working. At the same time, I don't think anyone would say absolutely everything that happens in this score is right. Or yeah. even that the score as a whole adds up to some great musical vision. Fidel himself said, I'm surprised anyone thinks of it that way because that's not really what I was doing. Yeah, I think that the 1984 score was more visionary. It's more musical, certainly. Yeah, you know, I kind of feel like we haven't had as much to say about this score as we sometimes do, maybe because it sort of slips past a lot of the customary ways that we like to think about things. Because, yeah, it's not really trying to be music all the time, but it really is feeling the mood. It's right in the pocket of this kind of moody and morose, epic-feeling action, and it really lives there very confidently in its own way. And... I think at the end of the day, I, I have to give it credit because this, this movie really just sits up and works. So, yeah, is it music? I mean, do we care? <laughs> you said that you said that uh, we have to keep having this same conversation till uh, the end of time. Well, maybe maybe the only way to prevent us from doing that is to send somebody back in time to kill one of us before it begins. So, Andy, it's time for me to whip out the old time machine here. Let me oh, see. we're not doing another time machine. <laughs> we're not. We're not going to do that. Oh, no more time machine gags? Someday, someday, maybe. But not yet. No? Not yet. No. I mean, I think I'm speaking for you in past and future when I say <laughs> no, not yet. And also, we, it's not even a consideration because we have an assignment from the Academy. That sounds very important. We're supposed to do this special show next time. So no bucket this time? I mean, I wish we could stop saying bucket, but <laughs> there's no lottery at all. No. We're on a schedule here. We're on a tight schedule, in fact. We've got to get to this. Yeah. Time to watch the Oscar movies from Fantastic Year of Film 2020. <laughs> this year, the biggest surprise in the Oscar nominations is that they made all of these movies. What? I didn't see any movies yeah i didn't know you could still see new movies i've mostly been watching movies for this show but apparently there were movies made this year so let's watch those you know i don't think i've seen a single one of these movies that have been nominated for score yeah what have you been living under a rock yes <laughs> we have all been living under rocks and now i am going to get these movies piped into my rock yeah. so that i can talk about them for next time which like you said we better get moving on that because uh they're gonna have some kind of a ceremony these shrugs don't shrug themselves we've <laughs> got to go and prepare very carefully our opinions Okay, so that's our assignment. Next time, we're back onto our uh, multi-movie kick here, which, uh, okay, I'll 
do it. I mean, we watched two movies for this one, too. That's At some true. point, we're going to get a one-and-done movie again. Yeah, yeah, we had to watch two different versions of Touch of Evil. We watched two Terminator movies for this. All right, after the Oscars, let's just watch one movie and be done. Yeah, and I want it to be shorter than two and a half hours. Okay. You think you can do that? All right, let's see if we can do that. But for this time, we're going to watch many more than two and a half hours worth of movies. <laughs> And talk about their score. So if you uh, like us doing that sort of thing, then yeah, please tune in again next time. And uh, while you're at it, leave us a review on your uh, podcast listening app there so that other people know to listen to us too. Yeah, do what John said. Oh, is it the Twitter thing? Uh, at this point, a Twitter thing gets said, which is that the Twitter account is uh, at Score Settlers, and you can give opinions, suggestions, and random thoughts there. The randomer, the better. All right, I said when we were going to this episode that I thought it would be a fun time, and you know what? I think it was a fun time, so there. All right, and I said, oh my God, we're going to have to talk about that. And um, Indeed, we had to talk about it. I tried, I tried, but like clearly <laughs> out of my element. Sorry to all of the T2 heads <laughs> out there. Well, nonetheless, well, I guess we'll, uh, we'll be back. We'll be back. Yeah, 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 we said it. Okay, <laughs> bye. Oscars next time.